Acts chapter 2, verse 42. As you know, we are in the midst of a series that Keith has entitled The Church, Cruise Ship or Battleship. And if you are like me, I have been freshly convicted over the past few weeks of how I I have the knowledge that the church is a battleship, but I'm living and I'm making choices as if I'm on a cruise ship, just asking for the next pillow or the next lemonade to come my way. And last week, Keith brought to our attention that we are in need of restoring a dependency upon the Holy Spirit. And I hope today will be a continuation of last week in that we are looking for God to restore to us what we are lacking. And we find that in these verses in Acts 2. So that's, if you would follow as I read, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We find in verse 43 a peculiar instance of awe that's unlike what what I believe we know. As the church in Acts, this first century church, these first Christians, as they were being the church, the Bible tells us that awe came upon everyone, every soul. And if you remember last week, he described to us that one of the words he picked out was to come upon. The Holy Spirit came upon the believers in the book of Acts as well. Well, you know, we always get real excited when we find things that are the same word. It's like, oh, that's cool. It's the same thing. It's the came upon. And that's really neat. Not this time. A lot of times that happens, but not this time. What, what we're referring to here is this came upon is more of a birthing from within inside. So as the church is being the church, from within inside of them comes an awe. That's a supernatural, peculiar awe. So what is this awe? Let's zero in this morning on this awe. I think awe would be that which we know, see, and experience of God that births respect, fear, wonder, and joy within us and mysteriously intrigues us and draws us back for further experiences. So we have the experience of this awe, that which births respect, fear, wonder, and joy. And in a weird way, draws us back for more. We see this with the kids in their interaction with Pastor Peter. Have you all ever identified this? He's the tickle monster. And so whenever little kids come up to him, they are absolutely terrified. Because he's got these little fingers going and he's, I'm going to get you. They run off screaming. But you know what they do? They come back again. And you know what's on their faces the entire time? Smiles. It's that weird intrigue of, this is really weird, but I want more of it. So let's draw out together these aspects of awe in respect, fear, wonder, and joy. We can, we can kind of lump fear and respect together because they really are so very similar. And it's very interesting in this passage, this word awe that we have in our Bibles is actually the word, the original word is, is the same word that we get the word fear from, phobia, phobos. And so what's come upon these believers, what's birthed inside of them is a fear. Fear. 
You know, we kind of think that's a little weird. Fear is a large part of relating to God. This is a bit challenging to think through because our first instinct as believers, as genuine believers, is to think of how since we're saved from God's wrath, we shouldn't be afraid of Him. Well, that's true. We are saved from His wrath, but that's not the only aspect of fear and the overall concept of fear. We are saved from God's fury toward our sins, eternal separation from Him. We should be afraid of God. Even though we may be saved from His wrath, we revere, respect, and fear the One who holds the power with the wrath. We fear and respect the One who has the power to punish and respond to sin. The One who has... The power to save the lost. The one who has the power to call things into existence that have never, ever existed before. The one with the power to melt the stone heart of man for his glorious purposes. This is power. Salvation is not permission to not be afraid of God's power. We are not fearful of his wrath toward his chosen people, but we are still afraid of his power. In your quote, in your outline, there's a quote by Jerry Bridges in his, jo- in his book, The Joy of Fearing God. He asks the question, is God safe? The scriptures teach us that in his grace and mercy, God allows himself to be our place of refuge. However, there's a large sense in which God definitely is not safe. Yet in our thinking about him, we've tried to make him exclusively safe. It's no longer in good taste in most quarters to speak of the judgment of God or his impending wrath. When we talk about God's unconditional love, we often mean he simply overlooks or ignores our sinful behavior and would never judge anyone. But God isn't that way at all. Scripture tells us that our God is a consuming fire and cautions us, therefore, to worship him with reverence and awe. No, God isn't safe, but he's good. And we must keep both these truths in mind if we are to understand and practice the fear of God. As we think about what it means to fear God, fearing the one who holds the power of everything, the omnipotent one, the almighty one. We should have the result in our hearts that we understand that God is not a God to be trifled with. He's not a God to be treated with little importance or even shallowness. But I wonder how much of our lives speak of the shallowness of God or the little importance that we give Him. Another aspect of this awe is wonder. And this wonder comes from the amazement of who God is and all that He has done. These first century Christians, in Acts 2 as we read, they lived with an amazement of who God was. Walking around continually amazed at all He had done and all He was doing, providing faith for all that He would do. But let's take a mental field trip. This morning, let's imagine and go back to our lives before we prayed to receive Christ. And let's think about how amazing it is that we even got to the point of receiving Christ. And what I mean by that is think of all the idiot things that you did before you were saved. And you can stand today and go. I should have been dead. And we see, we, we are amazed at the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, in getting us to the point to even hear Him call our name. We're amazed by that. That's the wonder that should be a continual experience for us. That was the continual wonder, the awe that these Christians live with. Another aspect of awe would be that of joy. And this is probably the most illogical aspect of awe. Because it doesn't make sense. How can you fear what you're afraid of? 
How can you as a little kid be smiling as you keep on going back to Pastor Peter afraid that you're going to get tickled? How can you enjoy what you're afraid of? Only in God's economy is this possible. Because this isn't a contrived joy. This isn't a joy based on a a, a mental agreement or a, a classroom setting knowledge. This is not that kind of joy. This is a supernatural joy. A supernatural joy that changes and affects our countenance, even in the midst of life's storms. Awe is to have an unnatural aspect that results in joy, gladness, and happiness. All of who God is birth joy in us, satisfying us and keeping us near Him, causing us to respond to Him in adoration, love, and worship. So that's the awe of all that is described in this little word, biblically defined. Now, let's look at the location of this awe. Where was it happening? In everyone's soul. The awe, this awe that came upon everyone was beyond a cognitive, learned experience. Again, it wasn't a mental agreement. What was this awe? It came from so deep within them, birthed within them, that it was from the very depths of who they were. I like to think that this all came from the place that's beyond explanation in our lives. And we all know what that is. Yet there was, there was a fear that welled up from within them. There was a, a respect and a reverence for who God was. There was a wonder at all that, he, all that He was, all that He was doing. And there was a joy that was welling up within them. In everyone's soul. You know, these, these Christians probably walked around in a stupor. Saying, wow. Wow. Look, again. Look what he did. And that person. He saved. I saw that one yesterday. He wasn't saved. Now he's saved. And wow. Wow. Look at all that God has done. Look at all that he is revealing of himself. Wow. They experienced the wow. As they experienced God's goodness and his grace. And look at the experience of this awe. In these verses, we find out that the experience of the awe that was birthed within all these Christians came with the combination of doctrine, fellowship, communion, prayer, and observing miracles on an ongoing basis with the atmosphere and environment of other-centeredness. These people were selling everything they had and giving it to whoever needed it. That's all. How many of us would part with what we have because someone has come forward saying, I have a need? That's all. Their lives were bent toward others, not themselves. And in this context, there was awe that was coming from within all of them. And it's fun to think about that the ordinary for them, the ordinary things, They were opportunities for the extraordinary. And the ordinary being extraordinary gave further, further avenue, further longing for further extraordinary things. The ordinary of what they were experiencing was extraordinary. Can we say that? We must be longing for restoration in this area. But are we are we aware of our need for it? Are we aware of our need of a restoration of awe? We have gotten off course and disoriented from God's desire for His church. We've drifted from the wow. Now the wow is only a periodic happening, not a constant reality. I wonder if we spend much of our time with the trivial 
and the sin that so easily entangles us that it actually squelches out and squanders the extraordinary taking place in our lives. We're still trying to remain calm in traffic when we should be seeing the sick healed. Still caught in sinful bondages when we should be breaking strongholds. Not seeing our personal deliverance from sin so that we might set captives free. We need awe. I wonder if we've we've not seen our own deliverance because we lack a proper fear, respect, wonder, and joy of God's power and His greatness. Now, it is very crucial for us to understand that our longing for restoration of awe is not a desire to simply to have God improve on what we already know of our experiences. We can easily put our experiences up with the book of Acts and see there's a difference. So instead of saying, God, please improve on my experience of you, we need to see our experiences and our expectations as insufficient as to what God desires to give us. Are we convinced that the experience of all is for us now? then we must be longing for something other than we've known thus far. We're still longing to be guided by Scripture and doctrine, but we are asking God for a holy encounter with Him, an other than encounter with Him. Our God is infinite. And He wants us to experience the pleasure of much more of who He is. All too often we bow out of the pursuing experiences because we see them and convince ourselves that they're unattainable. Well, we'll never be the church in Acts. You know, God had to do that in order to set the table for the rest of Christianity. So, you know, he set it at ten, but we're really going to walk out at two. What we do when we do that is we, we put the bar a little lower. That's unattainable. Let's try to go for something right here. The mysteries of God are unattainable. Our understanding of those mysteries are unattainable. But the the experiencing of the implications of the mysteries of God, they're infinite. And they're all for us to enjoy. We have a banquet feast available to us in God's kingdom. But we oddly relegate ourselves to only one portion of the table, one minuscule portion of the table, while we grow weary with what's placed in front of us. There's a feast available to us. We are needing more soul food. We need awe. We need something that's not just food for our minds. We need something that's food for our souls. That from the depths of who we are, there is an awe that's unexplainable. We can't quite find the words to describe how we feel about God. We can't quite find the words to convey what it is we're experiencing of His goodness, of His greatness and His power. We need a restoration of all. Our longings need to be different. Our expectations need to be different. Than anything we've had before, God's touch on the ordinary in our lives must set the table for Him to do the extraordinary. Are we willing to surrender the ordinary things to have God touch those? So they won't be ordinary anymore. We must be willing to become more undignified, more contemptible even, than what we already experienced. We remember the story of David... Coming with, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is, is leading the ark and the procession that's with the ark of the covenant. Back into Jerusalem, it had been an enemy occupation. It's brought, being brought back to its rightful place. And David has stripped himself to his undies. And he is dancing like a fool. And his very dignified wife tells him afterwards, you know. You brought much shame on yourself being the king and all your subjects seeing you as they did. 
And David responds to his wife and says, that's not about me. That's about God. And you know what? I will, be, I will become more undignified, more contemptible than what you saw today, because my God is God. And I am in awe of Him. See, when we do that, when we are willing to say, God, you have my life, you have everything so wonderfully, every, all the trivial things in our lives, all the things that consume every ounce of what we are, we think, they fall off into the shadows and all that's left is God himself. And awe is birthed within us. We must not be admirers of the predictable. We love predictability. Predictability. We like to know how everything's going to happen. Everything's. It's, it's why some people are fearful to bring their unsafe relatives or friends to church. Because, well, what if, uh, what if somebody gets up there and shares something in a tongue? Why do we do that? We're uncomfortable with that. Because we want it to be predictable. We have songs, one or two fast, too slow, offering, announcements preaching, little response time. And we begin to admire that. We show up on Sundays and we admire, man, it was great. Everything happened according to plan. <laughs> it was outstanding. We went to, we went to the, the covenant group and it was wonderful because everything happened as planned. Actually, everybody spoke. It was, we've become admirers of the predictable. We need to escape our ruts and have a restoration of adventure. One of the marvelous things about the church in Acts is they didn't know what was going to happen next. Every morning, they woke up, I believe, they woke up saying, what's God going to do today? What's going to happen today? What are we, what are we going to be wowed by today? Every morning was a reminder that anything was possible for the God of the impossible. Predictable times of prayer, whether they be private or corporate, must make way for God to do as He desires in our lives, in our corporate meetings together. Predictable Sunday celebrations must give way to the Holy Spirit's moves and desires. Predictable covenant group meetings must move over for God's agenda to be paramount. How many covenant groups would be turned on end if you actually spent a little more time praying than discussing the sermon. Very good. Predictable alphas. You know, even alphas, though we are, we're still in awe that people actually show up for that deal, they can still be predictable. Because it's the same thing. We've done this before. It can still be very predictable. But you know what? I believe the predictable alphas need to move over and make way for the gospel of Jesus Christ to fall as an atomic bomb on these people. To where we don't need ten weeks anymore. One's enough. One's sufficient. It's possible. We want it. The predictableness of life for singles over the age of 30 must make way for a radical life for God. The pivot must see and hear the Spirit's dominance rather than the dominance of human reasoning. The youth ministry must be adventurous in the revolutionary direction that the Lord has given us. The children's ministries must allow for the Spirit's communication of the truths of Scripture. Our predictable weeks need to be shaken by God's wonder. Our routines need to not be so rigid. What an experience of awe awaits us. But in order to have this, I believe we need the realigning of our focus. Our focus has drifted along with our sense of awe. And you'll see the second heading in your outline is realigning our focus. We have been derailed from what should be our normative experience and purpose in God's kingdom as Christians because of various impediments. 
four to which we will bring attention to this morning. The first is self-interest. We are more impressed with our own pursuits and stuff than we are with God. When we strip away all the peripheral items of our lives, we're more interested in doing what we want. We are awed by ourselves. We are awed by what we can do for us more than what God has done or is desiring to do. Work becomes our primary place of investment of energy, of creativity, of resources. Our want for money becomes the goal to bring peace and pleasure to our lives and families. The desire for marriage consumes service and sacrifice in the church. Our kids warp our passions. Fashion and our appearance cause us to have the awe of man. We desire more the praise of man than the praise of God. In our pride, we trifle with God. Even this morning, as you've been in church, we're thinking about where to go for lunch, what we need to do this week, what we didn't do last week, and even how pitifully the saints will play tonight. We're interested in us and our stuff. We rob ourselves when we are self-interested. We rob ourselves and God of the experience of His glory birthing awe in us. The second impediment is that of laziness. We are a lazy and fickle people. Can we just all agree to that? We're lazy. So consumed and awed by our desire for comfort and ease, we've lost passion and adventure in the things of God. We're bored with God. We get bored with God. How dreadful a state of existence. With all that He has for us at His feast table, we have the gumption to look in front of us and say, I'm bored. We lack effort, creativity, gumption, tenacity for the things of God. For godly living. And when we lack these things, when we are lazy, all that is is an opportunity for the ways of this world to erode our faith. Because the waves of the world will come. And if we are not awed by God, if we have become lazy and are only interested in us and our own comfort and ease, our faith will find erosion taking place. Why do we get so confused about our lack of spiritual passion and fervor when we can't seem to do the things we know God wants us to do? We know what He wants us to do. We just don't do it. Why are we awed by our lack of spiritual passion when we procrastinate and put off God's will for our lives. In our fickleness, we're trifling with God. Counting ourselves as more important than His glory, we rob ourselves of the experience of His awe. A third category that is often an impediment to our awe is that of spiritual depression. This is a very real experience that robs us of joyful awe. Many, many saints of old have battled with spiritual depression. One of those being Charles Spurgeon. The poet William Cooper would spend years in a depression. He would call it a dark season. And it was spiritually based. Both of those were spiritually based. A very real, we find accounts in Scripture where this is described, most notably that of Psalm 42, where the, the psalmist starts off as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Do you know when a deer pants for water? When it's this close to death. 
And then in verse 5 and repeated in verse 11, Why so cast down, my soul? Put your hope in God. Spiritual depression is real. Oftentimes in our spiritual lives, we, lives, we lose the sense of self-examination, which we're encouraged to do. Even today, we're, we're encouraged and exhorted to examine ourselves. But we move into spiritual depression when that self-examination crosses over into morbid introspection. Who we are and how we conduct life around people become, becomes our soul's gaze. We feel as if no one is around us, yet we're surrounded by people. Because who we are and how we conduct life around them becomes more important than them. Oftentimes, this spiritual depression, this desire for more of God and just not being able to get it, is the direct result of what Martin Lloyd-Jones says is sinfully living on other people's experiences or coveting others' experiences. And also looking at other persons' stories instead of grabbing on to God's will for your life. We are to conduct self-examination to test our heart's focus and attention in order to be once again awed by God. When we don't redirect our hearts... We fall into morbid introspection when we think that nothing is going right. We are enamored by our perceived reality. Than reality itself. We are awed by our feelings rather than the perfecter of our faith. We are awed by our perceived suffering, our affliction, and our perceived sacrifice. And it attacks the very grin on our face. It stands in the way of all. Our last thing, and this is the last on, the li- on this short list, but there are other impediments. Please don't excuse yourself. If your thing, I find it hard to believe that anybody can escape self-interest and laziness, but for some reason if you do, and your sin du jour is not on this list, then don't escape the Holy Spirit's conviction. But our last one on this is intellectualism. Sadly, we are often too smart and too refined for an extraordinary move of God. We overthink and trivialize doctrine and thereby limit our experience of all God has for us. Or, we simply become arrogant with all that we know. And knowing a lot about God, we fool ourselves into thinking that we know Him. But we don't. We know a lot about Him. We must, must be as children when it comes to experiencing God. Now, have you noticed children, they, they run to experience, they run to play with or without the necessary information. Have you ever seen a kid on the side of a playground just standing there saying, you know what? I don't know if I should go play on that slide. It might be a little too high. The degree of angle and descent might be not good for my weight. Go a little too fast. Plow into somebody else. You know, I have knowledge now that I'm not going to go on the playground. Unless the kid is punished on the side of the playground, they're playing, right? You don't see kids sorting out how to how do we exactly figure this out now? Where does it fit? Monkey bars, slides. The pole you slide, like fireman pole, yeah. But we do that when it comes to experiencing God. We need to be like kids. Just wanting to play. God, God responds to that. He loves that. We must be careful that we are not awed by our minds and our own thoughts. Now, thirdly, we, we're needing to experience awe. And we must understand that the church is the primary experience of our awe. We find this flatly in this passage. Interacting as a church, doing the church things, is to birth awe in us. And if it's absent, that's why we need restoration. 
This is by God's design. He's designed that as we gather as a church in hearing and applying the word, in fellowship and communion and in prayer, He's designed that we would observe supernatural power in the salvation of the lost, in healing of diseases, in breaking down demonic strongholds and deliverance from the bondages of sin. Oh, how, how we want His power to be here. We want His power to be evident, observable, here, on a continual basis, not periodically. Our purpose in the kingdom of God is to be walked out in the local church in the context of other-centeredness. This is God's heart to provide for us. Do we have God's heart in mind as well? In experiencing all, we must continue seeking and asking for a move of God's Spirit. Many times we're tempted to become discontented and discouraged because our, our experience hasn't matched up or met up with the expectation that we know God put in our hearts. God, you had me pray last week for a, a filling of the Holy Spirit, a baptism in your spirit, and God, it didn't happen. See, that's where we need to be careful to not be discouraged or discontented. And, and we wish we had an easy answer for you of why you weren't baptized. But you know what we're going to do? We're going to keep on asking. We're going to ask, and we're going to ask, and we're going to seek, and we're going to ask. This is what God said He would do. So we're going to ask Him to do that. And you know what? This is the encouragement for us. We're convinced He wants to do this. His wonder wants to be upon us. So what we will do is not let Him rest until He gives it to us. Amazingly, God gives us the faith the endurance and the stamina to stand before Him and say, God, this is Your Word. Please do it. And God, that didn't match up with what we know we're supposed to be experiencing. We look at Acts and we, we see the experiences there. And God, we want this. We desire this. But get us out of the way. Thirdly, we need to take risks and be on the edge spiritually. For some, that means stepping out and being used in spiritual gifting. For others, it means moving past the petty and the trivial in order to really know God. For others, it means allowing God's agenda to be bigger than your own. For others, it means coming to experience God as little children. And that might be in the context of worship. You know... We're a little too white when it comes to worship. We stand there very stiff. We're just concentrating on the beat. And we can't try to sing because we're going to lose the beat. And then we're going to be all awkward. Everybody's going to be looking at us. We're lazy. We're fickle. And we're white. We need to experience Him in worship. We, our expression must convey beyond a shadow of a doubt awe. Are we desiring to be more undignified, more contemptible than what we already know is our experience? Are we desiring so much more of God that, God, we will not let you rest until we experience biblical awe? We need holy moments with God that far exceed and outweigh any other experience thus far. Any experience we've had previously, so it births within us on an ongoing basis. You know, we, we think about the providence of God before we're saved, and that draws amazement up in us. And we think of our, our beginnings in the Christian life, and that, that draws amazement out of us. But is your yesterday three years ago, or is your yesterday yesterday? Yesterday draws amazement out of me. To where I look forward now to the feast. I look forward now to all that God has for us to experience. 
Oh, we desire this. Let's stand up together if we will. God, we're longing for more of You. God, would You awe us this morning, this very day, this very hour, God. God, hear our hearts cry. Sense our yearning, our longing for all You are. And God, would You meet us, please. We're going to have a time now where we will ask God to solidify His Word for us. We will ask God to do what He wants to do. See, even standing up right now after a sermon is predictable. But in our hearts, do we long for something more? Something that possibly we can't explain. See, doctrine, we will not depart from doctrine. We love doctrine. It is the fuel to our passion. It is the compass for our experience. But what good is fuel if it's never ignited? And what good's a compass if you never walk? God's promise is that He will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. We're going to keep on asking. And today, this time, I don't know what's going to happen. We just want to be with God and allow Him to awe us. So what does that mean for us? Now, during this time, what I believe the parameters are, if you're sick, expect to be healed right now. If you're weighed down with the thoughts of life, expect deliverance right now. If you are weighed down and in the bondages of sin, expect deliverance right now. If you ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit either last week or before and it has not happened, it's not met the expectation of your heart, expect it now. So we, we will worship and we will ask God for all these things. We will ask Him for signs and wonders that when we leave this place, we will have the grins of glory on our face. So if you if you if you're lazy and fickle and you actually need to get out of your seat in order to respond to do something, you're welcome to do that. But we will just wait on God and ask him, let us worship him, let us call out to him, let us long for all that he is. God, you have set us up for this moment. God, you have brought to our attention all that you desire to do with our church. God, We count every experience up to this point as insufficient. God, we we need a holy moment with You. God, we need a holy moment with You that produces in us an awe and a wow that's not a happenstance or doesn't happen every so often, but it's a continual experience for us. God, awe us now. Baptize with your Holy Spirit and with fire. Heal the sick. Bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted God. Deliver from sin, Lord. And have your way with us.